Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Skewed and Reviewed Skewedcast. I'm Gareth, creator of Skewed and Reviewed, and I'm joined, as always, with Justin and Michael. You can catch us online at sknr.net, and you can also catch our syndication partners. There's quite a few, but the main ones are BJ Shea's Geek Nation on KSWFM Radio. We have the simulcast to our segments posted usually every Friday on our page. We have uh, Pinal, P-I-N-A-L, Central Network of Newspapers, just types keyword skewed. There is our quarterly magazine. We just put out the new issue with the PlayStation 5 preview last week. And then, of course, uh, Abundant Syndication Partners and so on and so forth. We cover all things pop culture, movies, games, hardware, television, conventions, comics, collectibles, travel, entertainment, and much more. And we've definitely had a very busy weekend. And as we're getting ready for next week, when we will preview Comic-Con at Home, where they've just released the full schedule, and uh, we'll be talking about some of the panels we'll be covering. And, of course, the weekend after, uh, we will be covering what we saw, what we heard, that sort of thing. But for now, we're going to have a look at the video game conventions that uh, presentations that came over the weekend. Without E3, a lot of the companies have gone to uh, digital formats, and we had a showcase from Devolver Digital, as well as one from Ubisoft called Ubisoft Forward, who also promised one uh, would be coming at a later date. We've got news that apparently, not apparently, but in August, Microsoft and uh, Sony are reportedly going to have another round, and then, of course, we have PAX Online coming in September. We'll be covering all those at a later date. For right now, we're just focusing on Devolver Digital and Ubisoft. And since Devolver did their showcase first, we're going to open with them. And uh, in particular, three games that we uh, noted. One is Serious Sam 4. The other is Shadow Warrior 3. And the other one is out right now, free to play on Steam, which is the Devolver Land Expo. I played that uh, yesterday. Have some video up. So why don't we start with you, Justin? What's your take on this, and what stood out to you? So I think uh, the things that stood out to me the most were uh, definitely Serious Sam 4 and uh, particularly Shadow Warrior 3. Uh, I, uh, I've been always aware of, of both franchises, of course, but uh, I haven't really gotten into either of them. Uh, but Serious Sam 4, definitely uh, continuing the, the style of the of Serious Sam uh, 1 through 3, uh, you know, just a pretty straight-laced, fast-paced shooter with a lot of enemies on screen, uh, a lot of different types of enemies, um, and this looks like it just kind of continues that that legacy. Um, but I think the thing that really impressed me the most was Shadow Warrior 3, and that's just mainly because of how polished it looks. It looks absolutely incredible visually. It uh, looks very fast. Uh, and again, it's somewhat of a sim- similar vein as Serious Sam 4 in, in, in that it's a very fast-paced shooter, um, but th- there's a little bit more verticality, a little more um, looks like freedom of movement. Uh, you know, it, for fans of the original Shadow Warrior games, um, they were, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in the same line as like a Doom or a Quake or, or, or something like that. Uh, very fast-paced, uh, kind of intricate level design. Uh, but I think the thing that made Shadow Warrior unique was uh, some of the melee combat. Um, and also, uh, you know, uh, environmental traversal. So it seems, it seems like this continues that. Just It looks pretty great. There's all sorts of uh, advanced dismemberment. Um, 
and, and really, really cool, sharp visuals. So I was really impressed by both of those, um, and, you know, I'm looking forward to, to hearing more about it. And, Michael, your take, please. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I looked at, when I saw the um, preview of Shadow Warrior, it actually gave me a, a Doom or a Doom Eternal kind of vibe to it with the the verticality, but also with some of the kill, um, some of the grotesque kills, pulling people's eyeballs out, that kind of thing. Uh, it it kind of gave me that same vein of, uh, you know, it looks like it's fast-paced, similar to how the new Doom game is. Um, and I did I, I did look really polished. I mean, that was one of the things I also noticed when I looked at Serious Sam 4 is, you know, there's been, you know, Serious Sam was, was always kind of thing where it tried to one-up the Doom and Quake series by the amount of enemies that it had on screen, right? It was always about, you know, Doom would throw four or five enemies at once at you, whereas Serious Sam would throw hundreds, potentially. Um, you know, it, so it was always kind of that fast-paced, run-and-gun style, and I like that they're kind of sticking to that. That's one of the things I think Doom, the new Doom for 2016 did um, right, was it kind of brought back the, the frantic pace of the run-and-gun um, shooting, where you're just kind of constantly on the move, you can't stand in one place, there's no um, perceived stealth aspect to it, it's just about um, lots of enemies coming at you from all sides, and then um, you know, having to take those on. And that's something that the Serious Sam franchise has always done really well. I mean, story-wise, there's, you know, this one looks like it might have a bit more of a story to it, but it's always been kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek um, story aspect to it. It doesn't take itself seriously, even with the enemies that were from the previous um, ones that never tried to take itself seriously. It literally is just a, a fast-paced shooter. Um, so both of those showed a great deal of polish, um, Serious Sam looked really good from a from a just a strictly um, graphical perspective. Um, that's one of the things I think the previous games had hadn't taken as seriously because they the whole point was again was how many pixels could they push, how many um, enemies could they have on the screen. Not that they ever looked bad because they never did, but from a Serious Sam four perspective, it certainly looked graphically a lot more polished than some of the previous installments. So really looking forward to the, those two games, um, and, and again, they look like they'll be a lot of fun. They look like they'll be pretty frantic and pretty much kind of going, you know, in the same pace that those games have done in the past. So I'm glad they didn't um, very much from their from their you know, formula that's worked for them in the past, and it looks like it's just an up graphical version of the games that we've loved so far in the past. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because. Um, what got me about Serious Sam 4 was the fact that the enemies and the weapons are very consistent throughout the previous games. They just did higher uh, versions of them. Serious, uh, higher in terms of definition, higher in terms of, um, uh, you know, clarity, that sort of thing. The game always ran very fast for its time. I remember when Serious Sam 1 came out, it was like, wow, this is a lot faster than games that uh, you know similar shooters that we're used to and so uh, I, I'm curious to see if they up the speed or if they just keep it as a already fast game or if they try to take it faster Shadow Warrior 3 looks absolutely great it continues the off-cuff humor that has been uh, part of the original um, series all the way back I remember playing the original one on the build engine and thought it was absolutely great, but it also came out at a time when sensibilities were beginning to change. And all of a sudden, the off-brand of humor that was in the Duke Nukem games 
wasn't so acceptable in a Shadow Warrior game, especially when it had what many considered were um, potentially, well, not potentially, negative uh, Asian stereotypes and comments. Like, I remember the big one was, his name is Lo Wang, but people were saying, well, isn't he Japanese? Why is he, you know, because, so things like that. And I think they've done a great job with the new ones of staying away from that, but yet still keeping the uh, wise comments the guy made, because that was always a um, point of the game, was that he was a wise-ass. He made off-the-cuff comments that were not um, necessarily appropriate. Now, um, switching gears, let's have a look with uh, what Ubisoft came out. Uh, the ones that really stood out to me were, of course, uh, Far Cry 6, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and Watch Dogs 3. Michael, why don't you take it away and tell us your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I've been excited for Watch Dogs Legions ever since we saw some of the previews of it back at E3. Um, you know, it, it looks like it's kind of trying to compete with the cyberpunk game um, that will be coming out as well. It kind of takes place in futuristic London. Um, I, what I really liked about what they showed off in the game was how diverse each of the characters are that you're kind of building up this resistance army and each one kind of does their own thing. So one controls drones, one maybe, go, you know, one is a, a brawler kind of, you know, person, but he's also a, a drunkard, <laughs> to put it mildly. I mean, obviously there's you know, all sorts of different characters that you can bring in to this gameplay and really focus on um, your play style, how, how you want to approach each, each objective. You can approach them in different ways. You can approach them from a distance using drones. You can go up close and personal using your fists. Um, they showed off a guy that's a sniper, that's kind of like a hitman, but he also has kind of a, a, a sniper aspect to him. So I really like that they just have a, a very different group of individuals that each have their strengths and weaknesses so you can approach each um, each objective however you feel you want to do it. Um, graphically, it looks amazing. Uh, I really can't wait to see um, more gameplay on it. Uh, it's coming out fairly soon. I think it said October 29th or at least end of October um, for, for a release. Um, so I'm excited for that one in particular. That one, I think, is, has me the most excited. Assassin's Creed Valhalla, we had seen some of that shown off in previous um, presentations. They did a lot more with the gameplay, kind of talked to the developers, and kind of talked about uh, what the, what the, how Valhalla is going to approach um, the series in different ways than, you know, the other Assassin's Creed games. Um, so again, I've enjoyed, I, I think the Assassin's Creed games have, they kind of lost their stride a little bit between, you know, three, but then Black Flag kind of picked it up again. And then, you know, they, with Odyssey and everything else, they've really been kind of hitting their stride. Um, so, again, it looks like it's going to be a pretty exciting um, take on that, that series. Um, so, again, I, I, we've seen a lot of that, but I like that we got to see even more of the gameplay and, and some more footage of that game, and I think it's going to be fantastic. Uh, and then, of course, there's Far Cry 6, um, which looks to be, um, you know, another graphically intense gameplay on that same series. So all in all, I thought the Ubisoft um, presentation was pretty solid. Um, I think Far Cry 6 was a bit of a surprise, although there had been people um, expecting that we were going to see something from that the Far Cry universe. Um, so we weren't shocked, but it was good that we got to see as much as we did. Um, and then getting to see some enhanced footage on Legion and Valhalla, I thought were fantastic opportunities too. So all in all, it looks like Ubisoft has a pretty stellar lineup 
and the games are coming out fairly soon. So something to look forward to um, leading up towards the end of the year uh, in particular. And uh, Justin, your take, please. Yeah, so it definitely it looked like a pretty solid lineup from Ubisoft this year. Uh, and, um, you know, like what Michael said, Watch Dogs Legion looks like it's shaping up pretty, pretty well, and it looks actually kind of similar to... Uh, I think even before the show you were mentioning it looks somewhat similar to the, to the division. Uh, I, I am kind of enjoying that they're trying to play with more, uh, you know, open ways for, for players to a- approach uh, situations and kind of, uh, you know, expanding, y- utilizing their open world uh, settings in order to, to facilitate better, more open gameplay. So I think that was one of the things that, uh, sort of turned me off a little bit from from the Ubisoft games uh, in the last several years is that they, they all sort of you know um, I don't want to rag too much but uh, a lot of them felt very samey uh, in terms of how they dealt with their open world but I think they're getting definitely getting better uh, over time with with designing their open worlds and and uh, you know u- utilizing you know core gameplay mechanics in order to to kind of uh, yeah, basically leverage their open world um, so that it uh, it matches base it matches their uh, uh, their gameplay that they're looking for. So I think Watch Dogs is a uh, Legion is a pretty good example of that. Uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla looks pretty good. Um, it uh, visually is very impressive, and uh, I think it's a, it's a setting that uh, is going to be very popular. Um, it, and uh, I'm kind of I'm liking what I'm I'm seeing of it so far. Uh, Far Cry 6, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I would have liked to see some gameplay of it, but uh, I think that one's a little bit further off. I think it's into next, sometime next year uh, is when it's due, due to come out. But, you know, it's got a very interesting setting in a South American, fictional South American uh, country uh, that's uh, going through a, a uh, re- rebellious phase, so to speak. Um, it's a little light on details, but... Uh, I think there's been some rumors going around, some speculation that it might be a prequel uh, to Far Cry 3. Um, you know, some some apt members or people on the internet have pointed out some visual similarities between the child in the trailer and Voss, who was in Far Cry 3. Um, I think that's, that's that would be very interesting uh, to kind of loop back and tie into uh, some of the previous Far Cry games. The only thing that makes me a little skeptical of this approach is that the trailer is is very clearly modern day. So, uh, I, I I'm a little skeptical that that you know this is going to be a, a explicit prequel to a different Far Cry game, given that it does look like it's it's taking place in modern day. Uh, but you know we'll have to kind of wait and see uh, on that one, see how it plays, what's unique about it. But overall, I think Ubisoft had a pretty stellar lineup uh, of products this year. Yeah, they most definitely did. And I think what was so nice about it was that some of these shows get really bogged down in theatrics, and it becomes a case of we've talked in the past about some of these uh, events where they put people on stage who are clearly awkward at public speaking or they're not the most dynamic speakers. And we've always felt that, you know, you really need to pump up the excitement for your programs. And we saw that change a lot in the last couple of years where they were bringing some of the staff out and people that were a little more high energy. And I think the great thing about this was that Ubisoft did what I think in some ways might be the 
uh, pattern going forward in that they had, um, I, I don't want to use the hype people, but I guess for lack of a better word, the hype people, high energy people before the show started, during the countdown, showing clips, stuff like that. But they were not just talking a lot of stuff to try to build up energy. They actually had valid stuff that was exciting and interesting to hear, and they came out. It's similar to the old uh, adage of people who um, would take stand-up comedians on the road with them for a rock concert because they thought it was a good way to warm up the crowd, more so than bringing an up-and-coming band, get people laughing, telling jokes, then bring the band out. And what I saw from Assassin's Creed... Uh, Valhalla to Watch Dogs 3 to Far Cry 6 and the other programs that they showed was that this was a very well-produced, very well-timed uh, presentation. They gave us a lot of information. They gave us things that the fans would like, but it didn't become overly long, gratuitous, self-indulgent as they went on. You didn't see things that were in there where you said, oh, this is filler, or this is just so this executive can come out and get some screen time during the show, and they aren't really telling us anything relevant, they aren't really telling us anything that moves forward. Um, I was very happy with what I saw with Watch Dogs 3, particularly in that I'm not a stealth person. I found elements of Watch Dogs 2 frustrating in that there was the stealth and the hacking, which I do understand is a core component to the game, and necessary. I prefer a little more wide-open, run-and-gun uh, style of gameplay. And I think what I saw when I watched it, especially that scene with the nail gun when they were running around the construction yard, is my mind started going, huh, I'm, I'm seeing elements of the Division and Division 2 here in terms of combat. And, Michael, you brought up the whole notion of it's a play-your-way type thing, uh, and I like that. I like the idea of being able to put your team together, play your way, and go forward with that. Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I liked, uh, not only is it visually interesting, I like the combat, the freeform. A lot of people say that with so many games, kind of like the knock on Call of Duty, how do you make it fresh without repeating yourself? You make it too out there like they did with Infinite Warfare in space, people had a fit, but then when you roll it back to a more traditional, you get, oh, it's the same thing. Uh, and I think they've done a great job with, uh, you know, moving it around. We saw the Egyptians, we had the Greeks, and now we're getting the Vikings. And this is a very big Norse mythology. And I know they're completely different franchises, but let's not forget, God of War focused on the last one. There were some very relatable mythological references to it. I think people reacted going, oh, we're not just sitting in the Greek uh, setting here. We're frozen. And there were people saying, oh, there's there's Viking elements to this and so on and so forth. And I think it's a fascinating uh, area to look at because the snow and the visuals that presents is going to be something interesting. The new landscapes and environments because we're so used to jumping from rooftop to rooftop to rooftop in Assassin's Creed games. And while we didn't necessarily have that uh, with skyscrapers, with the Egyptian one, Assassin's Creed Origin, you still had buildings to climb up and down. You had temples. You had that. You had similar things in that one. But the architecture of the Viking world is very different, and I'm curious to see how they're going to uh, play that one out. 
The other thing is getting to um, Far Cry 6. Big fan of the Far Cry series. Really enjoyed the games. I think for me, they really took off when I got to um, Far Cry 5 and, and it's uh, Far Cry New Dawn. Not that I didn't like the prior games. I definitely did. But I think for me, the storyline of Far Cry 5 was more immersive. Um, you know, the Far Cry 2, I, I wasn't a fan of the malaria pill thing. I, to me, it distracted the gameplay to have to constantly keep finding and taking malaria pills. Um, Far Cry 3, fantastic. Far Cry 4, very good. But I think when you got away from the fact of saying the bad guy's not a warlord, and then they had the ambiguity as the game went on of, is this guy really a nutcase, or is he really doing what he thinks is right? And am I on the wrong side of this discussion here, or am I doing the right thing? And should, you know, I think that definitely um, made it a little more interesting. And then, of course, New Dawn having the aftermath of those decisions. So, a lot of great stuff there. I'm really interested to see uh, more of the game. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is definitely great, and his uh, profile on The Mandalorian is definitely not going to hurt when the game rolls out, and I'm very curious to see uh, more of it, like what the multiplayer is going to be like, how the vehicles are going to be implemented, are we going to have uh, more, less, or the same emphasis on crafting, lots of stuff going forward, but I definitely think this is one that's going to capture people's attention. Moving on to our final topic for the week is uh, San Diego Comic-Con Online. As you folks may know, the show is not going to be held this year due to the coronavirus pandemic, but they have moved to a virtual uh, setting. It will be five days. Their panel schedules are up. There are over 350 panels. Uh, most are pre-recorded uh, ahead of time, but several celebrities will be on hand to talk about shows. Now, um, rather than talk a lot about uh, t various TV shows, like, for example, I noticed the CW didn't have a lot of stuff, didn't see um, certain things that we're used to seeing, but that's understandable because they're not able to film right now. There were plenty of things uh, from uh, pop culture to comics to collectibles to uh, television shows to uh, topical event panels. There were an absolute uh, flood of those this year and lots of very good topics to discuss stuff on education and equality, you know, relations, representation, so on and so forth. A lot of good stuff. What I was most surprised over was a lack of movie panels. The traditional format for the show is that a lot of these panels are in Hall H on Saturday. This is the one that people do tend to camp out for. Um, the 8,300 or so seats that people try to get are highly coveted because this is where you get the presentations from uh, Warner Brothers, Marvel, other studios. This is where you get the first look trailers. This is where you get the first look reveals and you get the cavalcade of stars that come out. And we didn't see any of that. Part of that really surprised me because I looked at it and I had a list of films that I thought would be there because they had already completed filming prior to the shutdown. 
and others that I thought, well, might be nice, you know, and just off the top of my head, there was the Carnage film, there's uh, Godzilla versus Kong, there's, you know, some people said, what about the Dune movie, so on and so forth, and of course, I also brought up, what about Suicide Squad, so on, so forth, down the line. So, um, let's go ahead, and we'll start with you, uh, Justin. Why do you think we didn't see him? Uh, I think it really comes down to, um, I think movie studios still don't know um, how to approach the pandemic situation. We don't know what the new normal is for, for movies, uh, so they don't really know how to uh, shift their marketing schedule. I think that's really at the core the core of, uh, of what's going on here. Um, you know, with, with television, it's slightly more simple because... Uh, they're obviously releasing these on either television or uh, streaming services, so it's not contingent on um, you know an, an activity that is very very uh, closely watched um, in, during pandemic times, which is uh, movie going. Uh, those actions are fundamentally different. So basically. Um, any television show, uh, the, the only real factor is um, the change in uh, actual production schedule. So the delays of filming, the delays of editing, and things like that, uh, that's going to be the main thing that's going to change when, when a product comes out or a particular show. Um, as soon as the show is done, then they can release it, and it's not really going to affect... Um, the actual distribution of, of their show um it might affect a little bit in terms of you know shows might sh shift around when they release but overall uh once the show is complete um they can kind of release it and still kind of uh expect pretty uh, uh, relative results as to previous years um films are different though film films are very contingent on the, the actual release into theaters and uh, the box office performance. So uh, because of how expensive they are and how movie going in theaters is, uh, as of right now, you know, a very hot topic uh, to talk about, because, and rightly so, it's a, uh, you get a lot of strangers together uh, into a relatively enclosed space uh, for long periods of time, that is a vector for the virus. Uh, so, it, you know, things like movie going, bar uh, bar going, and, and restaurants, things like that, uh, those are activities that are still, uh, I think, on the higher end of the list of, of um, you know, uh, things to lock down. Uh, and I th that, that really affects greatly what the studios, how the studios approach their marketing. So they don't know when these movies are going to release. Um, yeah, even uh, Tenant as re recently, uh, you know, they released their trailer and they keep sort of pushing the uh, the release date back a little bit and back a little bit. I would not be surprised if if that movie got delayed significantly again, uh, just because you know they're obviously all these studios are watching the growth of the virus and they're gonna probably hedge their bets on well, if the virus is still like this in a few weeks, then uh, the movie theaters aren't going to open. We can't release our, our, our movie. And you don't want to uh, release your initial trailer uh, only to you know maybe eventually uh, delay the final release of your movie 
by several months. So I think that's kind of the core of what's going on here. Uh, I would, you know, I would love to see the trailer for Godzilla vs. Kong or Dune or a lot of these other movies I'm really looking forward to that were supposed to release later this year. But, uh, you know, at this point we're getting, uh, we're over halfway through the year. Uh, the virus is not going away. And uh, it would not surprise me if even movies that were slated for December get uh, delayed clear into next year, uh, shifting the entire schedule downward. So I think they're really kind of just sitting on this stuff. A lot of these trailers are probably done. A lot of the filming is probably done. And maybe even, uh, you know, a lot of the editing is already done for a lot of these movies. It would not surprise me if some of these movies get into a completely final finalized state and the studio ends up sitting on them until uh, sometime next year. Michael, your take, please. Uh, yeah, and I agree. I mean, I think the ir irony is a lot of these previews were probably or are probably already ready to go. I think with CinemaCon, which was one of the first shows to be canceled um, when the coronavirus lockdowns first started, um, a lot of the theater, the you know, the uh, studios would have wanted to present these um, to the theater owners showing what was coming either for the summer blockbuster or for coming towards the mid middle or end of the year. I mean, sometimes we would even see previews for movies that were in development that wouldn't be released for the another year or two. I think the problem we run into now is I think it's getting increasingly more likely that the opportunities for theaters to open this year is going to be uh, sketchy at at best and unlikely at worst and it's we kind of get into a catch-22 um theaters while they may open you know in a couple weeks or a month or so we don't know what the crowds are going to be like um with numbers with the virus going up as they are um there's been a lot of polls recently that said you know people's willingness to go to the theater immediately upon opening is like 15 percent of people polled um, that doesn't bode well for blockbuster movies that look to make up their uh, production budget um, with summer blockbusters. So it would, would make sense that we're not going to see a lot of hype or marketing or money put into marketing a movie if the expectation is they're going to have to push it back to next summer. Um, probably to get some of these summer blockbusters we were expecting this year, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they push them back to next summer uh, again. And there and there is a there's a marketing budget that has to go into um, promoting these films, uh, providing things, even something as simple as like a, a, as a, a, pre a preview that's already available or a, a trailer that's already been made, um, they're going to have to double that marketing next year if that's when the movie's going to be released anyways. So I think, you know, instead of saying, let's show these to some people now with the anticipation that the movie's not going to be released for a year, let's hold on to these that we've already put together. Let's hold on to the stars. Let's hold on to the previews that we've already built and let's save those for another time when we can actually reap the benefits out of that. And maybe that the earliest that's going to be is going to be CinemaCon next year, um, assuming that things are back in play by then um, with the hopes that some of these blockbuster movies are going to be pushed out earlier in the summer. Maybe we'll be looking at Labor Day or Memorial Day in May um, and June, early June, and then maybe seeing some of the 2021 blockbusters um, filling up some of that July time spot or August time spot. Again, there's so much going on now. It's, it's right now. It's really just a matter of how do we, you know, envision what that future for theaters holds, you know, how, what is that going to be look like in December? What is that going to look like early next year? Um, and again, most people aren't, they're not going to release a summer blockbuster in March, 
even if things are in full swing because they're not going to get the benefits that they would get summertime when kids are out of school uh, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I think I think right now they're gonna they're holding on to um, their marketing. They're holding on to their letting that excitement, uh, holding on to that excitement because they don't know when the release is gonna when they're gonna release it. And I don't think anybody wants to spend the money and, and do the marketing and show off a trailer. Yeah, at SDCC when they may not realistically even be looking to release it for a year. I mean, people's memories in, in general are short. Um, they're not going to be uh, looking, you know, wanting to get excited about something that's not going to come out for another year. Does that mean we won't see any trailers or any, any like teaser trailers? You know, maybe, but I think as far as the stars coming out to speak to those movies, any of the, the big flashy presentations that were planned, they're going to hold on to those. Because realistically, um, they're a going to be—they don't want to burn their time with the stars for something that they may try to get them back for again next year. And again, they're going to discuss something that realistically is not going to be released for a year. I mean, I just don't see that occurring. So I'm not too surprised that we didn't see much of what we expected to see from a movie perspective. And the likelihood of us seeing much of that until things are quote unquote more normalized, I think, is is a bit much to expect. So yeah, I think. I think this will be kind of a, a down year for movie excitement. I would expect that the earliest that'll pick up again is probably CinemaCon in April of next year, um, and then maybe SDCC again next year. But I think right now there's just too much up in the air, and we just don't know enough about what the expectation is. And they don't want to, you know, they don't want to play their cards until they're ready to to play. So I think we're just kind of kind of be in this holding pattern at least for the next several months as far as the movie releases go. You know, again, I think that unfortunately is going to hurt theaters even more because people are less likely to want to risk going to a movie to see a movie that's already been released to streaming services or has been out for a while. And if they don't have new movies to bring in people, then you have even less people spending money at the theater, which is going to impact the theaters even worse. So unfortunately, we're kind of in that catch-22 now where I just don't see any big releases being pushed out to theaters before there's going to be an, a crowd to see that. And without big promotional movies, big blockbuster movies being put in theaters, I think, don't think the demand for crowds is going to be there. I mean, people aren't going to risk their lives to go see something that's on streaming already. So, you know, it's I think we're going to be in this new normal now for a little while, and I don't expect we're going to see a lot of new blockbuster release titles until next year. Very good points, and the thing about it is it's such an evolving situation. Uh, I don't know if you gentlemen are aware, but you remember how we used to discuss, uh, we'd go to Box Office Mojo and discuss the uh, box office returns for the weekend and what, you know, was doing what? Um, well, believe it or not, that's still going on because of the fact that drive-ins still exist and are still open. And somebody wrote me this morning and said, do you know that The Empire Strikes Back is the number one film in the country right now at the box office? Because I didn't know they, I didn't know they were playing that at the yeah, drive-in. Apparently, they've been, it's been released at various drive-ins, and it did well enough to be the number one film in the country, which is interesting because, you know, most people have a copy of it, and it's readily available to stream on Disney+. Plus. So it does show that people still want the experience, and I think we can all agree that the sound quality uh, over your car radio and uh, the picture quality at a drive-in is not the same as watching it in a, in, a, in a closed theater. 
even though a lot of the drive-ins have moved to a digital projection versus the old one, that sort of thing. I don't know if you're aware, but back in the heyday of the drive-in, apparently they used to have drive-in editions of the movies, and it was due to the fact that, as you know, it doesn't quite get as dark in some areas, or it's not a, it, it's a little lighter, and as you watch movies at the drive-ins, people would say, especially, like, I used to have a rule of thumb, don't watch action films or, or heavy FX films at the drive-ins if you can avoid it, unless you've already seen them, because you're not, it's not going to look the same, and apparently they had versions that were adjusted accordingly to make them better visually for the drive-ins. That being said, you are so dead on about this whole thing. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, you know, Monster Hunter got delayed till 2021. Candyman got pushed back again. We're hearing stories of filming. You know, Mission Impossible has apparently resumed. Apparently, uh, the Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings is going to resume in Melbourne. Um, at the Fox Studios, we know that uh, New Zealand has got productions going on with Avatar and other things. But then you have that whole thing about the television shows. They were supposed to be able to resume filming, provided the local health office signed off, and then things went absolutely crazy again. And so right back to square one, in many places we're exactly where we were, if not worse than March. And then you have the whole problem with the movies. And I looked at it, and you guys kept you know, hitting the same valid points over and over. These films are massive investments. They need to, you know, people say to me, oh, can't just, just dump it on streaming. Streaming will not take Artemis Fowl. A lot of people say Disney's decision to dump Artemis Fowl on their streaming service pretty much killed the franchise because even though it, it did get mixed reviews, that sort of thing, but it had a $70 million plus investment. The uh, general math is that you have to make at least two and usually three times what your cost was in order to turn a profit. People are saying you cannot, even with their higher-than-expected subscriber base now, they are not going to be able to recoup their investment on that film. So then you have higher-budgeted films like Black Widow, like Mulan, like Tenet that are sitting there, and people go, oh, just stick them on demand. You know, Trolls did great. Well, Trolls didn't have the budget that these films do, and that's the problem. And again, and then you come back to the whole thing of, well, I'd much rather watch it in a theater. And I know there are people that will say, oh, I don't care, I'll watch it versus that. But then there's this other little problem to factor in. What do you do with all the 2021 movies? They've shoved all the 2020 movies pretty much to 2021. So all these films that are due in 2021, I don't think the studios are going to say, oh, let's just shove them to 2022. I think you're going to run a problem of there'll be so much product available. And also, let's not forget when they start filming again, there is going to be a rush to get these things ready, to get them out as uh, as viable as possible to recoup investment and losses. They Remember, studios are losing money hand over fist right now by these theaters not being open, by not being able to film and not being able to get things out. I'm already just wondering what the fall television schedule is going to look like now. And you sit there and you look at these things and you go, are they going to plaf You know, traditionally the argument was you have to put the big budget films out between Memorial Day and Labor Day and then over the holidays because that's the only time they can make money is when the kids are out of school and people are off work. Well, 
Twister kind of proved that wasn't accurate when they decided to gamble on a big budget film and put it out in February. So you've started to see bigger budgeted films coming out in March, coming out in April, coming out in May. And I think that may be what they have to do. They were going to have to either say, let's push some films back. And somewhere down the line, you're going to get a glut because I don't think they're going to want to stop the production of these films because people age, people are not as available. You know, what happens if you have a franchise and you're saying, eh, we were going to film it and put it out next year. Let's just film it a year later. And then you find out the star is no longer available because he or she has accepted all these other roles and there's a huge rush and a demand and it's just a logistical nightmare down the line. So you either have to sit there and spread your films out or you have to just take a glut of product, throw it out in the cinemas, and wait and see what sticks, even knowing that your one film may end up cannibalizing another film and they both might not do as well. And this is going to be a problem to have. And I think many studios are sitting there saying, let's just worry about the theaters being reopened and people coming back. Then we can figure out a strategy as to what goes to streaming what goes to the theaters and what goes uh, out when but you know to wrap this all up coming back to the trailers you're right these things are done the a lot of these trailers are, are sitting there now are some of them going to attempt to generate some buzz and say hey we don't need to pay money to put these at a convention let's just go ahead and release them ourselves but the argument with that is, well, then why wouldn't you do that under normal situations anyway? Because they know the value of releasing them during the conventions where the people get the buzz and there's the exclusiveness to it where they're hyping it up, hyping it up, hyping it up. That way, at a later date, when the trailers do appear online, people are excited over it. But then, as you said, there's the problem of how do you hype up a film when it could be a year or longer until this thing makes it to the theaters? And that's the problem, because there is the out of sight, out of mind. Uh, you know, Justin, we go back to the Godzilla versus Kong. That's a safe film. That's going to draw people, because King Kong and Godzilla have a very, very long cinematic and pop culture history. What do you do with something that's a more recent franchise, where you've hyped it, but maybe you don't know what the long-term legs are? The first film was a hit or a modest hit. You don't know how the sequel's going to be. And the longer you push it back, you know, one that keeps coming to mind here is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ghostbusters, popular series, but let's be let's be honest. The sequel wasn't as popular as the original. The recent one they did with the all-female Ghostbusters was not a success. And so the first trailer, interesting, didn't really show a lot. And now it's pushed back a full year. And they were already hyping it because, uh, as you remember, uh, they had it at uh, CES. I uh, remember, Michael, you saw it, didn't you? They had at the yeah, Sony we took booth. Pictures. They, yeah, we took right, pictures they, of they uh, had Ecto-1. Yep. Right. So they were planning on putting it out this year. It's already pushed back a year. They run the risk that the longer that goes backwards, it becomes less and less of an event picture because more and more stuff are, is going to come out between them. And that's also going to be a big problem. And then, of course, you know, there's that window. It's like I wrote in a, an article. You can't go putting Halloween films out in February and have the same ex reaction. You can't go putting out Christmas films in 
January, February. I mean, January may be close enough to the holiday, but you can't put them out February, March, April, May and have the same impact. I know some people will say, well, what about Die Hard? You know, that was a Christmas film. And what about Lethal Weapon? Those came out over the summer, but, you know, different animals here entirely. Um, we, we've already seen Halloween. Look at Halloween Kills, where the studio, we put the teaser trailer up just the other day, where the studio said, you know what? It's not going to happen in October. We're just pushing it back to October of 2021. These are people that are experts at looking at trends, looking at analysts, looking at the data and saying, this is the time to put the film out. And the fact that they've already said, we don't see October 2020 as being a viable outlet to put a horror film that, let's be honest, are done with much more modest budgets than traditional film, traditional mainstream films, which makes it much easier for them to return a profit. The fact that they're even saying already, yeah, this is not going to happen, let's push it back a year, should tell you all you need to know that, not being a pessimist, but at this point, I think it's safe to say that, I mean, we can certainly say the 2020 summer movie season's done, and I think in many ways studios are starting to look and say, I don't see the 2020 fall, you know, holiday season happening, and I know that they're all hoping that, something will come along in terms of a vaccine or a viable treatment that will allow people to come flooding back into the theaters around Thanksgiving so they can have the big holiday push. But, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And unfortunately, like you said, why promote something that's going to be an afterthought 10 months from now, 12 months from now, when we're only going to have to rehype it again? So... Uh, there we have it. And, of course, now watch. Uh, we're going to see a bunch of trailers released before, uh, during, and after Comic-Con at home, which basically, you know, will complicate the whole situation even more. That's going to do it for us this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to uh, your comments and such. Until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll talk to you next week.